Rock is Lit! Welcome to Rock is Lit, the podcast that takes listeners on the quest to find the very best rock novels and explore the propulsive energy and raw power of these stories about music, the people who make it, and the characters who love it. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook, at Christy Alexander Hallberg, and Twitter and Instagram, at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website, at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, follow, and spread the word. In this episode, we're venturing inside the complicated world of the Nashville music biz. Michael Amos Cody joins me to talk about his novel, Gabriel's Songbook, which follows starry-eyed Gabriel Tanner on his quest to strike it big as a singer-songwriter in the Music City in the 1980s. In the final segment, Fry Galliard and Peter Cooper drop in to talk about the real Nashville music scene in the 1980s. Fry is an historian and author of such books as A Hard Rain, America in the 1960s, The Southernization of America, which he co-wrote with Pulitzer Prize winner Cynthia Tucker, and Watermelon Wine, The Spirit of Country Music. Peter is the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum's senior director, producer, and writer. But first, I'm excited to welcome Michael Amos Cody to Rock is Lit. Michael was born in Sumter, South Carolina, and grew up in the village of Walnut, jewel of Madison County, North Carolina, not far from the ruins of Runyon, a place he has reimagined for stories appearing in such publications as Tampa Review, Still the Journal, and several others. He spent his formative 20s living and working as a songwriter in Nashville, Tennessee, where his songs were recorded by Glenn Campbell, Gary Morris, and others, including himself. He is the author of Charles Brockton Brown in the Literary Magazine, Cultural Journalism in the Early American Republic, and the novel Gabriel's Songbook. He is co-editor of the Literary Magazine and Other Writings, 1803 to 1807, Volume 3 of the Collected Writings of Charles Brockton Brown. His collection of short stories, A Twilight Reel, was published in May 2021 by Pisgah Press and won the Short Story Anthology category in the Feathered Quill Book Awards 2022. Michael lives with his wife, Lisa, in Jonesboro, Tennessee, and teaches American literature before 1900, Native American literature, and mythology in the Department of Literature and Language at East Tennessee State University. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Christy. It's great to be here. After reading Gabriel's songbook, I have an idea of what kind of music the main character Gabriel gravitated toward, so I'm curious if you share his musical taste. So let's play a set of five questions and find out. What's the first album or record you bought? I think uh, the Doobie Brothers, Toulouse Street, uh, 1972, I guess. I would, I would have been about 14 years old or 12. Yeah, about 14 years old, I guess. Either that or Jethro Tull's Aqualung. <laughs> okay, so you were a rocker from early on. Yes, yeah. I, uh, I like to say that you know a lot of people are influenced by their siblings. Yes. Uh, I have a, a great brother, but he was not a, a musical influence. He had two albums, uh, Merle Haggard's Greatest Hits and uh, Black Sabbath. Oh, my God. Uh, so, <laughs> those, were, those were his two albums. Uh, so I, everything that I listened to was somewhere in the middle of those. Right. <laughs> those now, I know that you're a musician. In fact, after this interview, you're going to go and play a gig. But what was your most memorable live music experience other than your own performances? Uh, I saw Jethro Tull in Asheville. 
the War Child tour in um, January of 1975, which mm. was which was a great experience because, as I understood it, it was their first tour in a while because they had kind of stopped touring with uh, bad reactions to a passion play. And so they put out War Child and they came to Asheville to rehearse the tour. I don't think Asheville was even on the tour shirts, you know, the list of, of stops on the back of the tour shirt. I don't think Asheville was on there, but they were there, as I recall, for about a week rehearsing. And then at the end of the week, they did a, a concert uh, and it was just an amazing experience. I think I was a sophomore in high school. Um, the other one was uh, seeing the Leonard Skinner uh, Street Survivors uh, tour uh, about six months before the plane crash. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and that was over here in Johnson City, where I live now. Yeah. Uh, and then my favorite moment was Springsteen's uh, Born in the USA tour. It's one of those things where I, I was the only kind of non – I was a songwriter, so I had a lot of free time. Uh, um, you know, compared to the rest of my friends in Nashville. So I was the one elected to sleep on the sidewalk. <laughs> get the uh, tickets. <laughs> in order to get the, get the tickets. So, uh, so I, I did that. And I just remember being in the, the uh, auditorium at uh, MTSU at Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And the lights went down. Of course, there's no warm-up band for Springsteen. Um, the lights went down and I could see the shape of his telecasters sitting on stage. Uh, and just that moment when, when all of a sudden uh, the telecaster goes up and turns sideways and you know he's got it on. And then there you go. That was an amazing feeling. was that show uh i think it was uh, it was close to four hours long. <laughs> i was gonna say he's he's got that yeah. reputation of having those monster long shows yeah and then and then uh you know my friends and i over the next two or three years the tunnel of love album and and we uh we just followed him around we went to various places uh, that were within a day's drive and just bought scalper tickets and went nice. to see the shows so yeah, he gets a shout out in Gabriel's songbook a couple times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh, and he, you know, talking about um, influences. My cousin, who is who's probably uh, who is definitely like a brother, came home from his freshman during his freshman year at UT Knoxville, and uh, he had he had been turned on to Bruce Springsteen, uh, "The River," the album. Yeah, and uh, and that was the first I had heard of Springsteen, and and I just have been. Uh, in love with the music ever since that was about 1980 i guess yeah i love his stuff too yeah. if you had the opportunity to interview an artist or a band who would it be and what's one question you would ask given the arc of my own experience i'd like to talk with christopher cross really uh yeah um i mean to think about what he went through uh, you know, in sort of 1979, 1980, he releases this, uh, you know, self-titled album, which had, I don't know how many, you know, four or five 
top 40 hits on it. And then he won, he was nominated for six Grammys and won five. Uh, and that, but then, you know, uh, for whatever reason, I mean, I, I tend to think that it was probably um, the influence of, of MTV. Although I love MTV, I think it did a lot of damage to us as well. Oh, we're going to talk about that later for sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. But, but you know, I mean, Christopher Cross was this huge success uh, and, uh, and nobody lo- knew what he looked like. There was no picture of him on the album. Um, and when they did, I don't know if they were disappointed or what, but... But uh, he never was able to to ratchet up that kind of success again, and so I'd like to I'd like to talk to him about that and see how he kept going. Do you know what he's doing now? Is he doing anything with music? He's still playing. He had a. I was reading up a little bit uh, recently. He had a horrible, horrible uh, bout with COVID. Oh um, dear early on and lost the use of his legs for a time. Uh, it, mm. it, it triggered some, some other sort of dormant condition that he had. And so it, it really took him out of commission for a while. Uh, but I think he's, he's still touring. Some friends of mine saw him in Nashville at a club uh, just before, not, not long before COVID hit. And um, said he was still just uh, amazing, his voice. And, and, and surprisingly, you know, he's, he wasn't necessarily known for this, but he's an amazing uh, lead guitarist. Um, no, I didn't know that. In fact, uh, are you familiar with the YouTuber uh, Rick Beato? Yes. Mm-hmm. Rick did a show on him, uh, or did did a show that featured, I don't know, what makes this song great, or yep. it was one of those, right? Yep, I love those. Uh, and he, uh, he did Christopher Cross's, I think it was Ride Like the Wind. And uh, and he you know he was able as you know if you watch it he's able to isolate tracks mm-hmm. and and he was um, he was just having a, a a wonderful time listening to uh, Cross's lead which he said you know he was complaining because he says here's this awesome lead especially on the outro uh, that is just buried in the track right. Um, but he pulled it out and listened to it, and he was he was acting, you know, reacting as as Rick Beato does, you know, <laughs> just uh, uh, getting his mind blown by this track uh, from Christopher Cross as a lead guitarist. What's on your playlist now? Uh, I have been listening to, uh, or I have been reading the the, the band memoir of Long Train Running, uh, the uh, our story of the Doobie Brothers. It's largely written by Tom Johnston and Patrick Simmons, although Ted Templeton, their pr- producer, comes in a little bit. It's Tyron Porter, the bass player. And a couple other voices in there, but it's mostly just Johnston and, and Simmons telling the story from the very beginning, how they met and and, uh, and how things transpired as they went through their careers. So as I'm reading that and reading the the development of the albums and such, I've been listening to a lot of Doobie Brothers here, mm-hmm. here lately. Which artist or band would you like to see featured in a rock novel in some capacity? <laughs> this was a, 
a fun question to think about. I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I would like to uh, to see you know one of my heroes like Springsteen uh, in in a novel, uh, and I, I I think it would be fun to see a novel that featured. Uh, the B-52s. Ooh, aren't they on their last, right. they're, they're on their final tour now, aren't they? Are they? I don't, I don't, well, that's one of the things I, that I was thinking about is, is I don't really know that much about them. I enjoy their music. Uh, but I thought you could have a, a really, a really fun novel featuring the B-52s. Yep, that one would be lively. And, yeah. And if you <laughs> wanted to, if you wanted to have a sort of cerebral uh, element and maybe create a, uh, a mystery in Athens, Georgia, you know, throw REM in there with them. And uh, that would, that, I would read that. Okay. That's an interesting choice. I love asking this question. <laughs> I get the most yeah. amazing answers from people. Yeah. Like Susie Quattro picked Simon and Garfunkel. I, I, I said, I got to think about that one. Right, but she right. made a great case for it. So, hey, I'm she, on board. She did. She, she did. did. All the, the uh, I mean, uh, as I told you before we started, I listened to the, to the episode and yeah, she was talking about the, um, sort of the internal tensions right. between the two and how that, that could really play out nicely in a, in a, in a narrative. Yep. I think there should be a scene when they're just duking it out. Yeah, right. <laughs> and maybe Paul Simon's standing on a chair or something. <laughs> or, exactly. or, or, or low blows. I don't right, know. Right, right, right. <laughs> Cause I think the disparity between their heights is pretty significant. It is significant. Like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's take a short break and we'll be back with Michael Amos Cody. And make sure you stick around to hear Frog Galliard and Peter Cooper talk about the 80s Nashville music scene in the last segment of the podcast. This one's for you, Susie. April, come she will. When streams are ripe and swelled with rain. Resting in my arms this is Michael Amos Cody, and you're listening to Rock Is Lit. And we are back with Michael Amos Cody, whose novel, Gabriel's Songbook, is the focus of this episode. So let me just start with, with a synopsis, and I'm going to steal the one from the back of the book. Gabriel's Songbook moves between the landscapes of fictional Runyon, North Carolina, and Nashville's Music Row, and follows a songwriter and singer through his search for fame and belonging. As he juggles ambition, love, and occasional despair, he finds that his dream of success and his love of music become increasingly at odds. There's a, a lot to unpack there. Let me start with Runyon. Tell me about Runyon. How closely is it modeled on your own hometown of Walnut? Well, not really at all on Walnut. Walnut is is literally just a, a village. Um, uh, it has, uh, I mean, it's it's a uh, when I was growing up, Walnut was two small stores, one of which had a post office in it. Um, the uh, the school, which when I was growing up was just uh, one through eight, right? Uh, and then four churches. So that's really all Walnut is. So so Runyon was a town that actually existed the first uh, early part of the 20th century. It was a sawmill town. Uh, owned by some folks who uh, who had come down from Pennsylvania, and uh, it was a it was a thriving community. I, I've I've heard numbers as much as you know twenty five hundred people living there, which for a, a little mountain town is is pretty significant. 
Um, but then at the beginning of, uh, of the, you know, the, the meltdown, the, the great depression, right. The people from Pennsylvania pulled out, shut down the mill and Runyon just disappeared. I mean, uh, everybody left, nobody was there. And, and what was remaining their houses, the, the mill itself, um, all of that just over the next, you know, 60 years just decayed. You know, I, I went there with my brother. We, we walked down there. It's down on the river between Marshall and Hot Springs in Madison County, North Carolina. It's right at the confluence of the Laurel River and the French Broad. And um, we went down there in, in the early 90s, I think. And, and there was still a pile of rubble that was the remainder of the one-room schoolhouse. Nobody has cleared that away? Um, There's still rubble there? No, no, it was, it was still there. Um, it's not now. I went uh, with a colleague of mine uh, just before COVID. Uh, this was December of 19, uh, and the, there wasn't any remaining uh, wood there. Um, but it was always interesting because you could see sort of in the, in the hillside, you could see where people had lived because the grass was different from what would grow in the woods. I mean, it was yard yeah. grass, right? Um, but it's just growing there by itself. The, the one of the more um, uh, moving parts, um, uh, one of the more moving elements of the of the remnants of Runyon, uh, was up on the hilltop looking over the river. Apparently, the houses of the mill owners were up there, and they were they were more substantial. They had concrete, um, you know, foundations and such. And so those foundations are still there, as is the foundation of the mill. But there was one uh, one sort of beautiful little scene of this. There's a chimney standing there, uh, and then the the sort of squarish uh, bit of of concrete foundation, and then there was just a, a line of uh, or a double line of jonquils that were blooming uh, that must have lined the walkway to the yeah. house. Um, you know, the still sixty years later, those are blooming. Uh, just out in the middle of the woods, the the paymaster's shack still stands there. You know this this concrete room, you know maybe just six by ten, something like that, stands out in the woods. These uh, sort of eighteen inch thick walls um, for their for their vault. Um, you know, so so things like that. So what I did, uh, Christy, was take take Runyon and and add elements of other Madison County towns like Marshall, Mars Hill, Hot Springs. Um, it's got uh, a little bit of uh, a little bit of those. Uh, maybe uh, there's a there's a really cool town, and I don't know. You may live there. Uh, no, you live. In <laughs> I'm in Leicester. Leicester yeah, right? right outside Asheville. You're Leicester. Right. Uh, so uh, I'm thinking of Waynesville, which is a really wonderful. It's not too far from me. Wonder, yeah, wonderful little town, uh, and uh, and so it's so. Runyon, I've sort of made it into this sort of conglomeration, conglomer yeah, <laughs> conglomeration of all these little towns, and 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 made sure that it was a place that I would really like to live in. Well, right? it comes across in the book that that okay. Gabriel is definitely very passionate about his feelings of home, and it, but you know the writing is lovely throughout the book, but I think it's at its strongest in the section set in the Runyon area, the mountains, Appalachia. So there's a strong sense of place in the book. There's a, the festival in the first chapter, the moonshine party in chapter 14, which I really wanted to go to. 
the, the 4th of July festivities in Runyon in chapter 15. In fact, there's almost a romantic quality that you create around those places and events. And in that sense, you kind of mythologize the region. I mean, there's a purity about yes. it. Down the road here from me, there's an old holler tree where you lay down a dollar or two. Go on around the bend and come back again. There's a jug full of that good old Mountain Dew. Oh, they call it that good old Mountain Dew. And them that refuse it are few. I'll rush up my mug if you fill up my jug with that good old Mountain Dew. What does Appalachia and home mean to Gabriel? I think what they mean to Gabriel is a great deal of what they mean to me, and, and that is uh, beauty of the landscape is, is probably the, the main thing. The depth of, of history, but not, not necessarily just local history, but, but, uh, but the history of family. Right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I grew up in the house um, that my grandfather had built uh, – not long after the the uh, beginning of the 20th century. That's amazing. Um, the house, the same house my mother had grown up in. She was probably born in the house. Um, mm. So I grew up. I grew up in that uh, in that house in Walnut. My room was the room that my you know grandfather had had died in, and so so there's this rich sort of connection with with the land. Uh, Certainly the people, but but more so people in regards to to family. Uh, and um, I grew up at a time when when tensions were starting to grow as people moved in from you know outsiders were coming mm-hmm. in, uh, that sort of thing. When I'm reading those particular scenes I mentioned earlier, I was making notes and I'm writing down food, <laughs> religion, community and family, mountain music, religion. All of that stuff just kind of comes together and forms such a, a, a fundamental element of, of what makes that region or this region that we're both in what it is. All of those things seem to be, you know, in the fabric. Right. Maybe even more so than a lot of other places in the country. I mean, I know it's more so than Eastern North Carolina. The mountain music is such a, a big part of people's family history and my granddaddy played the fiddle. My my grandmother played mm-hmm. banjo, kind of thing. All that going on, right? Yeah, and it's uh, you know, there's that the situation for Gabriel there becomes tense uh, in the scene that you mentioned, the moonshine uh, party and the ride home, and the in the and the Fourth yeah. of July party that follows right on the heels of that. Um, you know, Gabriel is looking at. Delbert Gunter, the old fiddler, and and sort of trying to imagine himself away from the music business in Nashville, which is more business than he wants it to be, uh, and uh, and and trying to imagine himself back in those mountains. And then when he tries to do that, he he can sort of get a sense of it with with uh, with the the sort of gentle spirit. Of Delbert Gunter, but then the next day when he's wandering around the Fourth of July party, and there are all these family groups that maybe Gabriel thinks that they should be impressed with him, 
right? Because he's mm-hmm. he's gone and done what they have wanted to do, many of them, right? Gone to Nashville, big time thing. Uh, and yet he feels very outside their their circles. But I was really pleased with the way those those sections turned out. Oh, absolutely. And I love that you mentioned Delbert Gunter. He was like, and this is a quote, he was like a minister to the congregation of mountain musicians. There's something spiritual and pure about him. And he tells Gabriel that music comes from these hills. If you leave the heart of the music behind, you're lost. And I know that you have said that really the ultimate influence on Gabriel with regard to music is music with heart. And that's sort of what Delbert is talking about. I think one of the, you know, uh, Gabriel, what he comes up against is a music business that in the 1980s, I don't know that it cared as much about heart uh, as, as it, as it might, had before or, or maybe even after. Um, I, I often think about Gabriel and myself in terms of had we, <laughs> I'll just com- conflate us here, had we been trying to make it right in the 1970s or even in the 1990s, it might have worked. But the 80s, again, back to MTV, just so image conscious that the, the heart was often left out. It wasn't exclusively, but, but, but it was, it was more, much more difficult to find a, a space to insert yourself uh, as a musician uh, in the 80s, a musician playing on, on heart, right? Okay, well, well, let's talk about the image that Nashville was looking for in the 1980s that Gabriel never could match up to. He never could measure up to what they were looking for, like the um, the brothers who want to turn him into modern day Lord Byron. <laughs> right. I mean, think Prince, uh-huh. Oswald, and Edward Turanock. Um, let's let's talk about the the image uh, in general that Nashville was looking for at that time. Nashville at the time, uh, the the circles that I moved in, there was a lot of thought about um, you know Nashville becoming very central uh, in terms of all kinds of music, right? So the the clubs in Nashville, in fact, Christy, when I was living there, it's different now, but when I was living there, the country music people never played in Nashville, ever. Really. Ever. I mean, they played the Opry, of course. I should say that. Yeah. You know, they did that, uh, and then once a year they had a big festival at the fairgrounds that they called Fanfare. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but country Mm-mm. music fans come from all over the world, uh, and that's the one time that the that the country artists were in town, uh, and they would do shows at the end of the day. Um, but you know, they never played. The auditorium. They never played the the concert venues around town. Uh, those were all from touring touring groups from from uh, you know the rock world, wow, uh, and heavy metal world. Um, you know the sort of alt uh, alternative world. I remember seeing uh, one of my favorite bands, The Call, um, at uh, Vanderbilt. You know th- that sort of thing. And you know you had wonderful people like um, songwriter John Hyatt. You know, he lived there, uh, and, uh, and and a number of, of people like that were there in, in Nashville. Of course, you had the younger younger group of folks like Pam Tillis uh, and making and, – and Roseanne Cash and, you know, those folks making music that was sort of reaching out. But the clubs were filled with, with uh, sort of uh, 
I remember one Webb Wilder was a was a guy who was there, and he's very sort of this quirky uh, performer who dressed in kind of these baggy, you know, 1940s suits and and uh, you know just just really fun fun music to go listen to. Uh, but the you know the the country music industry was um, I think they were they didn't how do I say this it was in the years following Urban Cowboy okay and, which came out the, in 1980 as I recall I think that's yeah. about right yeah so you had country artists seeing a lot of crossover success there and so they were looking for that kind of thing. Single bars and good time lovers were never true. Playing a fool's game, hoping to win. And telling those sweet lies and losing again. I was looking for love. I and Gabriel, you know, it just didn't fit that that image i think at one point in gabriel's songbook billy keith tells him well you know it's a little bit too mountain man looking you know for uh for nashville right now uh and and then of course you have the the la outsider at the end al cat coming in and telling gabriel you know that he's he's too fat to make you know to be on mtv and that that sort of thing so it was you know there were very distinct image requirements well, I love that you mentioned Al Cat because Gabe asked him, what does image have to do with music? And he says it has everything to do with the music business. And right there, you get that split and what the real problem is. It's not about the music. It's right. about the business. And and you get the sense that that out the Al Cats of the music business, whether they're in Nashville or L.A. or New York, uh, don't care about music, really. Right, mm-hmm. uh, and and so I try not to I try not to come across uh, so much with uh, the feeling of of sour grapes, but but it it, it I think it is a, a fact that there there were a lot of a lot of uh, people who were denied um, you know progress because of because of that kind of thing. Let's talk a little bit more about MTV. Do you remember the first video you saw? Let's see. Um, this this is kind of fun. Um, I, I don't know that I remember the first one. Um, I remember, you know, watching it when it first came out. I know that their first one was that video, Kill the Radio Star, um, yeah. which is a wonderful song and, and prophetic, but <laughs> prophetic, <Very> right? True. <laughs> um, but, you know, when I was recording my first album uh, in Nashville, you know, when I wasn't doing something in the studio, you know, singing or, or or paying attention to the to the mixes or whatever, I was out in the lobby of the recording studio watching MTV. The one that just popped into my head was were these really odd things that I really loved. Uh, it was um, the song was called Mexican Radio. Oh yeah, Mexican Radio. That song by Wall of Voodoo. We're on a Mexican radio. <laughs> Right. Wall of wall of voodoo, yeah. I hear the talking of the DJ. Can't understand just what does he say? I'm on a Mexican radio. 
but those those groups like that that were most of the industry did not know what to do with the music video, right? So you had a lot of really sappy stuff, a lot of the hair bands doing these really sappy looking videos. Um, but other groups, and and they were often the sort of wall of voodoo type folks uh, or early U2. Uh, but, you know, they were doing, they had a little bit of art with what they were doing. But many of the videos, it took a while for them to, you know, you know, you had people setting standards like Peter Gabriel's videos. Oh, my gosh, Sledgehammer. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, so things like that. Um, you know, we're, I just could not pull my eyes away from that. But ultimately, after after a time, you know, in a sense, it sort of robs your imagination. Going back to the two brothers who want to cultivate this image for Gabriel. There was a passage where they, they basically want him to become an alcoholic, coke-using, bisexual philanderer, you know, because of the mystique, yes. because of, you know, the whole, oh, people will be interested right. in that. If you could father maybe an illegitimate child or two, that'd be awesome. So it's mm, just yes. it, that passage really crystallizes the problem that became such a problem when MTV gained popularity. And that, that was such a fun chapter to write. I bet it was. Uh, in fact, I, I remember somebody I was, who was, I think I wrote part of that for a, a, you know, a writing workshop. And the instructor of the, of, of the, the workshop said, yeah, these guys are, are nuts. Just take them, take them over the top. <laughs> you know, uh, you're, you're too restrained with them. Uh, just, just let, just make them just, creepy and over the top, which is what I'm trying to do. But you know, Michael, the, the sad thing is that's probably a pretty accurate representation of music execs at that time. Yeah, I, I think I think it is. And I, I've, I've, it felt it resonated well yeah. uh, with me. Um, you know, my life as a songwriter in Nashville, and Gabriel doesn't really go this direction, but my next character uh, that I've been working on does he just wants to be a songwriter and what uh what would have happened to gabriel which is probably again what ha would have ha what did happen to me was that the nashville music uh the people at the record companies in, in particular were always very fond of what i did yeah but they but they didn't know what to do with it We can't find a, a pigeonhole for this, right? We, we don't have the marketing set up to do you know, to break something like this out. It, it falls too much in the cracks, which is why I, I wanted to put the Muscle Shoals scene in there because yeah. Muscle, Muscle Shoals at the time didn't really buy into that kind of thing. I, I, I did get an opportunity like Gabriel to go down there. I ultimately turned it down, but, but Gabriel's songbook was, a, was a, an opportunity for me to explore what might have happened um, in Muscle Shoals, which ultimately, you know, does turn out to be 
basically the you know a little bit more success but but in in the same the novel would have ended up in the same place i think because of the turinox and the other things that gabriel is just he's just not he's just not willing to to go there i love the character harvey mcdib mm-hmm. this drunk old country star who the manager of the songbird cafe introduces gabriel to after gabriel performs there and he's all excited to meet this guy who's got a name but Harvey brushes him off and tells him to leave Nashville and go home to North Carolina because Nashville will eat him alive if he stays. Yeah, that was uh, another... Uh, writing this novel was very uh, cathartic for me. When I left Nashville, I mean, I went through a period, much to my wife's uh, chagrin, you know, she married a music man and then and then I went through this period for probably 10 years when I just didn't, I didn't listen to music. I didn't play music. I just rejected it outright and then slowly worked my way back into it. But, um, I think what Harvey McDib, uh, suggests to, to Gabriel was something that I, I really felt. And, and so, so I think the novel comes down to, uh, in some ways expressing or it, what it revealed to me was that that I was not uh, willing to do the things that I needed to do to be accepted at the level that I wanted to be accepted at. Right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so I had I had been you know pissed off for a long time uh, that it didn't work out, uh, and then you know and through writing the novel I was like. Yeah. Well, maybe I didn't really even want it to work out. You know? <laughs> yeah, you get the sense that Gabriel's a little conflicted about that too. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of overlap in your story and his. Mm -hmm. and, and this I found interesting. When you were in high school, you played in a cover band called the Whitewater Band. Yes. And you guys weren't a garage band. You didn't practice in a garage. No. You guys practiced in the bass player's old chicken house That's that y'all right. would clean up before playing. That's right. So congratulations on being yeah. a member of the first chicken house band. Right. We were the, 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 the coop, we called it. <laughs> uh, that's where we... You guys played a lot of dances and proms locally, mm -hmm. and, and that's when you started to write songs. Yes. And so in that regard, your history as a musician sort of mirrors Gabriel's. When did you go to Nashville? I was a music major at Mars Hill College. I was, okay. I was, I was a flute major, but I was writing songs. Uh, and then about the time uh, my junior year of, of Mar at Mars Hill, I realized that I didn't have the dexterity to be a really great flute player like Ian, mm. and Ian Anderson, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's what I wanted to be. Um, that I didn't have the dexterity to do that. So Belmont College in Nashville had just begun a music business program. So I moved there for one semester, um, found out that it was, you know, <laughs> sort of the Gabriel Songbook uh, area. It was more business than music. Uh, you know, I had to take accounting and that sort of stuff. And I just not, right. I'm not good at that kind of thing. Uh, so, so I was there for a semester in the spring of 1980, uh, and then I uh, I went back with a songwriting deal uh, about a year later in '81. So I lived there through the '80s, and and moved back to North Carolina in the summer of '89. Uh, Lisa and I got married in September, and I I sort of traveled back and forth for a couple of years uh, before it. You know, I just kind of let it let it go altogether. 
Now, was she with you during the Nashville years? No, no, it was, uh, no, she was, it, it was very much like uh, Gabriel and Eliza. I, you know, I, I say, I think the way that I usually like to, to say it is that, that the, the novel is autobiographical in its bones, but then its flesh and blood is, is fiction. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the way it, it seems to work. I remember I was very nervous when, when Lisa was reading it for the first time. Um, and, uh, she said that she, you know, she would come across something and say, well, that's not the way that happened. But then, <laughs> then, <laughs> then she, uh, then she realized, you know, she just stopped herself and said, wait a minute, this is fiction. So just mm-hmm. don't, don't worry about it. But, um, no, she wasn't. We had gone to high school together uh, and had uh, a romance from basically the seventh grade and the eighth grade and then split up and didn't get back together until we were 30 uh, after my wow. na- after my Nashville experience. Uh, and um, okay, yeah, so so it's it is it is very much like uh, Eliza and Gabriel's uh, experience. Lonely footsteps play the sidewalk Like a drum in the midnight still Trying to shake off the chill That fell on my heart so long ago In the night somewhere a dog barks At the shadow Another woman Gabriel has a romantic relationship with is Yvonne, who's a bass player in one of his bands. But that's a whole other conversation. Ultimately, I think Gabriel's true love is music. Yes. That's the thing that he can never let go of, even when he kind of lets go of the dream. One of the things, and I, I, I would imagine that most people who, most of us who do this kind of thing, you know, I love to write. I love to write these novels and stories, uh, and and I get a real charge out of that. I get a real charge out of teaching. Um but you know there uh, there really is nothing like um the moment of of either writing songs or playing songs for people when 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 everything is clicking uh, it's just a, it's just a, a kind of a transcendent um experience uh, and and as much as i enjoy these other things there are they kind of work on a sort of slow burn Compared compared to the uh, the sort of shock of of you know picking up a guitar and and playing a great song for a group of people you know that, there's nothing like it. There's a quote from the book. Gabriel says he's a and I quote junkie for the elevation and thrill that only songwriting gives me. The progression from creation to performance when it's right is breathtaking, addicting, and I'm an addict. So that's that's exactly what you're talking about, hmm. and what that, and why he can't fully right. get rid of it. I forgot it. that was in there. That's, yeah, 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 yeah. That's exactly it. Uh, this, you know, you just there's a part where he sort of senses how to to write songs that you know a lot of people. Um, I don't I don't know that that everybody has that who is a songwriter, but but that certainly uh, is Gabriel's experience. It certainly was mine. Um, that that there there is a kind of an ethereal sort of ineffable 
other world experience of being lost in the writing of a song or or the performing of a song. I mean, tonight when I'm playing a gig, you know, for 40 or 50 people out on this patio, I'll I'll be playing it like I'm playing, you know, for 20,000 people, you know. You don't get rid of it. No, you don't no, get rid of it, it, do you? As long as I'm able to do it, I won't be able to get rid of it. <laughs> so... I think that the story of Gabriel and, and Gabriel's songbook is, uh, although it's the story that you really don't hear, you hear the success stories, uh, but I think probably Gabriel's songbook is, is the, the much more common story uh, within the music business. Well, that's depressing as hell. It is. It is. But, <laughs> you know, you, you learn to live with it if you're on, on my end of things. And, you, yeah. and then you write a novel about it and, and uh, yeah, get, get yeah. somebody to punch Cat in the nose, right? There you go. There you go. <laughs> get Gabriel to turn the couch over on top of Oswald Turnock. Exactly. Yeah, so you get your little, get your little jabs in, <laughs> I think. I thoroughly enjoy Gabriel's songbook. It's a fabulous book. Right. And Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. Keep up with Michael at his website, michaelamoscody.com. Can people find you on Twitter, Instagram? Yes. Uh, I think I'm at Michael Amos Cody on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, and then I think I'm at Dr. Macode on, um, on Twitter, which is at D-R-M-A-C-O-D-E. Excellent. Pick up a copy of his novel, Gabriel's Songbook, and his new book, A Twilight Real Stories, wherever you buy books. We'll take another short break, then we'll be joined by Fry Galliard and Peter Cooper, who will talk about the Nashville music scene in the 1980s. This is Fry Gilliard. This is Peter Cooper. And you're listening to Rock Is Lit. We're back with more Rock Is Lit. For this final segment, we're joined by Fry Gilliard and Peter Cooper, writer in residence at the University of South Alabama and former Southern editor at the Charlotte Observer. Fry Gilliard is the author of more than 30 books exploring themes of social justice in Southern music, religion, politics, and culture. His award-winning titles have ranged across the genres of history, memoir, journalism, and historical novels for young readers. His critically praised books have included A Hard Rain, America in the 1960s, which was an NPR great read of 2018, and winner of the F. Scott Fitzgerald Literary Prize, Watermelon Wine, The Spirit of Country Music, which was featured in the Country Music Hall of Fame in Nashville, and his latest, The Southernization of America, A Story of Democracy and the Balance, co-written with Pulitzer Prize winner Cynthia Tucker and published in March 2022. Fry has co-written songs that have made the U.S. folk and country music charts and appeared in nationally distributed music videos and documentary films. 
and his byline has appeared in many, many notable publications. Peter Cooper is the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum's senior director, producer, and writer. As one of Nashville's most respected music journalists, he has written for The Tennessean, American Songwriter, Esquire, and numerous other publications. His insight is deepened by his experiences as a Grammy-nominated producer, a singer, a songwriter, and a touring musician. His songs have been recorded by luminaries including John Prine, Todd Snyder, and Country Music Hall of Fame members Bobby Bear and Mac Wiseman. Country Music Hall of Fame member Chris Christofferson said, Peter Cooper looks at the world with an artist's eye and a human heart and soul. Welcome to the podcast, Fry and Peter. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. As you know, the focus of this episode is Michael Amos Cody's novel, Gabriel's Songbook, which follows the character of Gabriel Tanner on his quest to strike it big as a singer-songwriter in Nashville in the 1980s. I think to fully appreciate all the changes taking place in Nashville at that time, we should go back to the 1970s and take a look at that decade. Fry, your book, Watermelon Wine, deals primarily with Nashville and country music in the 70s. What was the country music scene like during that time, and who were some of the major stars? Guy Clark, one of the great songwriters uh, to come to Nashville in the the 1970s, um, compared it once to being in Paris in the days of Ernest Hemingway. Uh, It was uh, for some of those guys and and women, too, um, you know, that it was art for art's sake. Uh, That wasn't true for everybody, but it was for, for Guy Clark or Jesse Winchester or Towns Van Zandt. Tom T. Hall, though he was on the country charts, um, you know, he was primarily a storyteller who just, uh, you know, told his stories through music. That was the, um, that was the, just the, um, the way it was in Nashville in those days. And, you know, it was exciting to write about it. Um, and you could feel the other, the other tension of commercialization sort of building as well. And so, it wasn't Nirvana, but it was um, it was a great time. I remember a song that a friend of mine named Vince Matthews wrote uh, that Gordon Lightfoot later recorded. It was uh, it was called "On Susan's Floor," and it was about how um, songwriters like himself uh, just um, crashed on the floor of this woman that they knew who was generous enough to put a roof over their heads so mm. they could go out and ply their trades. That was just kind of the spirit of Nashville in those days. Well, when I think of country music in the 70s, I think of outlaw country. Think of people like Waylon Jennings and and Hank Williams Jr. and Johnny Cash, uh, Willie Nelson, that that whole crowd and the urban cowboy scene. That's what immediately comes to mind for me. Yeah. And it was uh, that for sure. That was part of it as well. And, and um, you know, those people were, um, were were doggedly creative and also and in, in, in determined to control their own art. And they sometimes fought with the, uh, uh, the moguls of the music industry for their own creative independence. And then on the women's side of the issue uh, of the, of the scene, you had, uh, you had Loretta Lynn, you had Martin, mm-hmm. you had Emmylou Harris, um, Linda Ronstadt was in and out of town. Um, so again, uh, you just had some, some, in my opinion, really great stuff on the country music charts, as well as in the, uh, uh, you know, just the, the little clubs that dotted the landscape around town. 
Yeah, and there was the the rise of Southern rock and country rock. So that, you know, all of these different kind of branches of rock and country were, were sort of coming together during that time. Absolutely. David D. Bumgarner, who is director of the creative writing minor at East Tennessee State University, called Gabriel's songbook the best novel of the music business he's read in a long time. So, Peter, you wrote a new introduction to the reissue of Watermelon Wine that updates the book's themes. Can you bridge the gap between Nashville and country music of the 70s and 80s? I mean, what were some of the differences in not only the music, but also the music business? There were some gaps, but uh, in, in a lot of ways, the, the 1980s, um, I don't know, there, 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 was, there was a lot of great country music there in the 80s. And that's, uh, I, I was a uh, high school kid uh, listening to Nashville music and uh, uh, Emmylou Harris, who Fry uh, mentioned, was um, somebody who, who made popular albums in the in the 70s and in the 80s and se- seemed to connect all of these um, worlds. The 80s were, uh, for a time, a really down period commercially for country music. Uh, and then there came in the, in the mid-80s what uh, uh, Steve Earle called the, the great credibility scare. <laughs> Which was, which was um, critically acclaimed uh, artists getting signed to major record label deals. People like Nancy Griffith, Steve Earle, uh, Lyle Lovett, um, people uh, Roseanne Cash, Rodney Crowell. People who fused folk traditions uh, and country music and uh, were great. Uh, storytelling singer-songwriters. The 80s was also when the uh, video world seemed to open up for country music uh, through, uh, uh, there there were a couple of dedicated country music cable video channels. And um, uh, that was, that gave fans the opportunity to kind of uh, to feel like they knew uh, these musicians uh, you know they, they could they they got another window uh, into them speaking of these music channels these music video channels MTV debuted in August of 1981 and then CMT launched in March of 1983 so it it really it really was from the beginning of the 80s onward that video and these music channels began to become so popular. How do you see that as impacting the the people who were stars in the 70s? Could they cross over? I think a lot of them did cross over. There was also a station called uh, TNN, the Nashville Network, uh, that that was a a big deal. And uh, these stations were much more music substantive uh, than tends to be the uh, the deal today. Uh, you would have some in-depth interviews. There were live shows from Opryland. People like uh, Ralph Emery had a nightly show uh, that would have stars of the day, legends of country music, uh, and upstarts often on the same show. I, I remember uh, actually going to a show 
uh, Ralph Emery hosted show uh, that featured uh, Porter Wagner, who was a, a great, uh, you know, legend of country music and is now in the Country Music Hall of Fame, and Tim O'Brien, who was a bluegrass wizard and uh, just a, a wonderful, wonderful musician who was not necessarily a name, um, you know, was, was not featured on the country charts other than as a songwriter. There exists the notion that uh, that TV made image more important uh, in country music, and I, I'm not sure that that's correct. I, I think image has always been important uh, in country music, and and uh, you know just the the outfits. Uh, it's always been about the song, but also uh, um, more than that, about the, about the singer of the song and the relatability of that singer. We want our singers to be, um, to, to relate to us <laughs> and also to dress better than we do. <laughs> <laughs> You know, in the novel, when the character Gabriel goes to Nashville, it is the 1980s. And, it, you know, it's on the cusp of that, that change with MTV and CMT and, and all of that. And every music executive he encounters wants to change him. They, they were looking for a certain image that he didn't have. And, and I'm hearing you say that its image has always been important in the music business. But do you think there was a certain, a certain kind of image that executives were looking for in their artists in the 80s that was a little bit different from prior decades? I think there was a flailing away uh, in the 80s among executives uh, trying to figure out what would work and how it would work. Um, certainly the um, video era made people, uh, made record executives want to sign people who were, I don't know, in, like uh, in shape. <laughs> and uh, Country musicians started to look like athletes in in some cases uh Randy mm -hmm. travis was a was a workout hound uh but also a tradition-based artist who sang um songs that could have been sung in the 1950s or or 60s i don't think any of this is particular to country music i think it's it's the way the industry worked and and the way the world works um i i don't think that it necessarily came as a detriment to the music. I think radio uh, changed in in, um, in the 90s uh, and, and became a, uh, a, with the Telecommunications Act of uh, 1996, um, uh, playlists were um, 
what you would listen to on a country station in Cleveland was a lot like what you would listen to uh, was in fact the same as uh, what you would hear on a country station in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Um, there was a homogeny uh, that set in, but that, that was really the, the 90s. Um, and I, I think it's important that we, well, I don't know if it's important, but uh, uh, I'm interested in country music um, as a, uh, a kind of arms expanded genre, uh, not as a uh, limited radio format. And um, I can hear remarkable country music any night of the week uh, here in, in Nashville. Um, it may not be from people who are featured on country radio stations. And sometimes it is. One of the best pure country singers I've ever heard is a guy named uh, John Bird, who Fry knows. Um, and uh, you know he play, he plays little clubs on on weeknights, and you you won't hear a better country music uh, show than John Bird. Now he's not going to be featured on your uh, commercial top forty country station, but he is for sure a country musician. Once I lived in old Virginia. North Carolina, I did go. There I met a fair young maiden, though her age I did not know. And I, I think that the uh, the character Gabriel in this book um, is working between these worlds, trying to find a way to uh, popular success while also retaining his um, artistic vision. And the, those those things are definitely hard to combine. One one other thing I was going to add to what Peter was saying, in in my view, from you know. Looking down from ten thousand feet, it seems like Gabriel, the character in that fine in the fine novel that you're talking about, um, got to Nashville in in a sort of bridge decade between the the seventies that I consider a really golden age for creativity and the nineties when the pressures to be more cookie cutter and conforming, at least on radio had had taken root and i think that was beginning to affect songwriters in the 1980s and and that tension between uh between art uh and stardom which is always a, a tension that um uh, that you know performers struggle with do you know um that i think that began to become more acute in the 1980s some people handled that tension really well and really easily emmy lou being one dolly parton being another um but um but but some songwriters that i knew during that time really did struggle with it like like gabriel did so you know there's something universal about the character gabriel too i mean the the music business changes, but that uh, artistic aspiration endures, and and all of the heartache 
and disappointment and um, you know and joy that all of that 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 can bring as well. So anyway, it's a great novel. It is. It is. Well, thanks so much for being a part of this episode, Fry and Peter. Find Fry Galliard on Facebook at Fry Galliard. Where else can folks find out more about you and buy your books? Um, I have a website also, uh, frygilliardauthor.com. And um, uh, and then um, my uh, publisher for a lot of my recent books has been New South Books, um, in Montgomery, Alabama, and they have their own uh, website. So, you know, I'm around. <laughs> Find Peter Cooper at his website, petercoopermusic.com. Peter, are you on social media as well? Uh, a little bit. I, I probably need to be on it more. Uh, <laughs> you can find me on Facebook. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll put links in the show notes. Thanks again to you both. And don't forget to pick up a copy of Michael Amos Cody's novel, Gabriel's Songbook, and his new book, A Twilight Real Stories, wherever you buy books. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is Lit! Rock is Lit!